Well, friends, Christ is risen and he's hungry. We're continuing today with stories of the resurrection, and so we turn to the account from Luke's gospel. We find a near rerun of the story from last week, which we heard from the gospel of John. In both instances, in both gospels, the disciples have heard whispers of the resurrection, but they don't believe it themselves just yet. They are hiding from the world when Jesus appears and startles them from their fear, offering his wounded hands and sides in proof of his resurrected form. Now, in John's telling, this is enough, and the disciples rejoice. But Luke wants us to know that Jesus arrives hungry, and he asks his disciples, do you have anything to eat? And with bizarre attention to detail, Luke tells us not just that they brought him a bit of fish, but that it was baked or broiled, and that Jesus ate it while standing right there in front of them. Now, this is the gospel known for careful detail, but even then, this seems a bit much. What's so important about the fish? Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered together in spirit this day be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. The word sanctuary describes a place that is set apart for holy things, and some churches feel like it. Whether it's the stained glass and the sweeping architecture, maybe marble floors and dust motes drifting through the air, or even just the echoing silence, walking into a sanctuary can sometimes feel like a departure from one realm into the refuge of another. At some points in history, there has even been such a distinct separation that even the law could not reach over the divide and fugitives found immunity in this separate space. Sometimes a sanctuary can feel like a place of escape. Now, occasionally as a pastor, I have the privilege of taking an engaged couple through the sanctuary of the church where I'm serving as they consider holding their wedding service there. It usually feels overwhelmingly normal to walk into the sanctuary on a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday morning. There might be a few bulletins lingering left out from the prior Sunday's worship service that I'll do my best to stealthily pick up while pointing out the center aisle and talking about how flowers on the ends of the pews can really accentuate the space. And the couple will imagine how the pictures might look with their wedding party lined up across the front. And I'll continue on about the talent of the organist all the while while wondering if I've done enough to sell the space. I'm not usually in sales, at least not like this, but I do my best. I understand what they're looking for. Like the rest of us, they're looking for an escape. For just a moment, they want to step out of the everyday and into a place where the unfortunate realities of life are forgotten and joy bursts forth in its stead, where the pictures all turn out and somebody else does the dishes, where nothing is out of place and everything is just as it should be. They're looking for a place that can let them leave earth behind and land in heaven, even if just for a moment. And aren't we all? But in that moment, standing in a mostly empty sanctuary with my feet planted very firmly on the ground, the best sales pitch I can offer is to say that Jesus shows up here sometimes. Because he does. But I'm not sure that's exactly the same thing. This week... 
when the trial coverage of the former police officer Derek Chauvin charged with the unlawful killing of 46-year-old black man George Floyd was interrupted by news about the police shooting of 20-year-old black man Dante Wright, was interrupted by the news about the police shooting of 13-year-old Latino boy Adam Toledo, was interrupted then by the news of a workplace shooting that killed nine and injured seven, we might have come to worship today hoping for a refuge from the terrible realities of the world. In the gospel story today, the disciples are hoping against hope for the same. They're huddled together and still reeling over their own experience with a state-sanctioned murder when they watched Jesus crucified at the hands of the empire just a few days prior. But now, now three days later, they've started to hear scattered reports of resurrection. First, a few women had been to the tomb and told of an angel there who said that Jesus was alive. And more recently, two disciples had rushed back from their trip to Emmaus where they swore they traveled a ways with Jesus himself. Now hidden away, the disciples are all talking about these things and so engrossed in wondering what it all might mean for them that they don't notice when Jesus suddenly shows up. Peace be with you, he says, and they all panic. Even the eyewitness accounts hadn't prepared them to see for themselves, and as much as they wanted to believe, resurrection is a hard story to swallow. Why are you startled, Jesus asks them, as if the most natural reaction wasn't to be exactly as they were. Surely, Jesus could fathom why they might doubt their eyes, why they might look and yet wonder if what they were seeing was real. At least at first, the disciples are absolutely convinced that he's a ghost. Resurrection is hardly the most reasonable explanation for Jesus' sudden appearance. And even though first century Judaism had a theology of resurrection, that was about the resurrection of all of humanity at the end of history and not a single solitary person suddenly coming back to life and showing up in your family room on a Sunday afternoon. It would make much more sense if this Jesus figure in front of them was simply an apparition from another realm. But Jesus goes to great lengths to prove otherwise. Look at my hands and my feet, he says to them, with limbs outstretched. Touch me and see. And he's insistent. It's spoken as a command instead of a polite invitation. Jesus looks out at his disciples still reeling from shock and urges them to grab him and hold on. Get a good grip and a good look. Can you feel the sinew and muscle under your hands? Can you see the open wounds from the nails? It's really me, he says to them. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bone like you can see that I have. The disciples are overjoyed, even as they persist in their confusion and their questioning. So Jesus continued, do you have something to eat? He asked them, and someone got him a piece of fish, and they all watched as he chewed and swallowed. There was no trick, no hidden deception. The fish was gone and Jesus was not. He was right there physically and in the flesh, standing in front of his disciples, digesting a bit of tilapia. It's an important point for Luke to make because the reigning Greek philosophy of the day, and maybe even the reason that the disciples thought Jesus was a ghost in the first place, was that we are all souls trapped in a world of flesh and blood. The physical world was so evil and inferior, the thinking went, 
that God in Christ would surely have jettisoned his body as quickly as possible to escape from this world to the heavenly or spiritual realm. Now, Luke might have known it was incredibly important to refute this idea because of how persuasive it is in its appeal. Because if what ultimately matters is just the soul, And if the goal of this life is to rise above the world and eventually escape into the refuge of the spiritual, then it follows that faith should focus exclusively on spiritual matters and can overlook the physical challenges of the world. If what matters is solely saving souls, then the church need not worry about the suffering and pain of the bodies the souls are in. There is a certain convenience to decide that Christians can forego the difficult things like hunger, disease, and slavery to focus on more spiritual questions. It's a tack the church has taken with some frequency throughout the years. A thousand years after Luke's gospel was written, it was preached to American slaves with this theological slant. Slave owners who felt a moral imperative to evangelize their slaves had no, moral, had no similar qualms about the physical conditions of slavery and so did all they could to ensure that Christianity dealt solely with spiritual matters. They hired preachers who wouldn't worry about things here on earth but speak only on issues of heavenly importance. There is today in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., a preserved copy of a Bible which was published by slaveholders for their slaves with the entirety of the Exodus story and numerous other passages about liberation from bondage all removed because the slaveholders didn't want anyone to get the wrong idea about the impact the Christian faith might have on the physical world. In an 1846 address decrying the terrors of slavery, Abolitionist and former slave Frederick Douglass pointed out that the Methodist Church in America, one of the predecessors to today's United Methodist Church, he pointed out that the Methodist Church in America had more than 250,000 slaves owned by all of their members and ministers, and in fact had determined that they had no right, no wish, and no intention to interfere with the relation of master and slave as it existed in the slave states of the American Union. And he was right. Ten years prior, in 1836, the General Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church, composed of delegates representing the whole of the church and convened with the responsibility to speak for the church, resolved by a vote of 120 to 14 that they were, quote, decidedly opposed to modern abolitionism and wholly disclaimed any right, wish, or intention to interfere in the civil and political relation between master and slave as it existed in the slaveholding states of this union. As still happens today, speaking about the societal and civil, the political ills of this world was seen as interference, as straying out of the church's proper place. And so still, do we frequently limit the church's ability to speak on questions of politics and economics, on issues of war and peace, on matters of equality and health, even sometimes refusing to denounce sin because it impinges on a topic we'd rather file away under civil or political. But Jesus ate the fish, 
Jesus ate the fish, stood before his disciples in a wounded body of flesh and blood to prove that the resurrection didn't take Jesus out of the physical world, but rather put him right back into it. Grab hold of me, Jesus says, and see. And that's where we start, hanging on to the one who died and was raised to come right back here with wounds and an appetite like the rest of us. If the only thing that mattered was getting us from the here to the hereafter, he'd be pulling us in that direction already, but instead he grounds us ever firmer in the world we share. He does not let us escape from the terrible realities of the world, but instructs us to touch the wounds of the body of Christ. The resurrection teaches us that it matters what happens to people's bodies that the arena of faith encompasses the entirety of the world and cannot be constrained to a simple pathway to the beyond. It matters that people have food to eat and clothes to wear. It matters that people are hurt or imprisoned or killed and sometimes in disproportionate measure based on how they look or where they live in the world. It matters that some people are under the thumb of oppression or feel the weight of injustice. It matters that some are sick and suffering, that the burden of this virus is unfairly distributed across our population. What people feel and experience in their bodies matters. The world is a painful place to live, and there are more wounds than it seems like we can touch. Grab hold of me, Jesus says, and we do, hoping for a refuge and an escape. We hang on hoping that Jesus might pick us up and carry us far away, but we look out and see that we land exactly where we started, and the only difference is that we know how real resurrection is. And when we know how real resurrection is, we don't have to run, because everything awful around us isn't destined to stay that way forever. Death turns to life. And wounds are born in resurrection. Nothing is so far gone that it must be abandoned because nothing is so far gone that it cannot be redeemed. Resurrection is real. The poet Maggie Smith touches on this in a poem called Good Bones, where she makes the incredible analogy between the world and a house for sale. She writes this, Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger... There is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real dump chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. The resurrection story tells of Jesus' return to a body because the world has good bones. It could be beautiful. We could be a part of making it beautiful. And so we hang on to the very real body of Christ that does not sweep us away, but deposits us right back where we started with a hope and a promise. Resurrection is real, and this place could be beautiful. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, let us continue in worship now with the next hymn, which is number 327.